Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossin. And today's episode is Here For You Part 1, where we'll discuss anaesthesia for the obese patient. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Now, we're sure that our listeners have performed their fair share of anaesthesia for patients that are obese, so we're certainly not embarking on a topic that is unfamiliar. But the BJA recently brought out a fantastic article on this very topic, so we thought it was prudent to discuss the recommendations for the perioperative management of and important decision-making necessary to ensure that obese patients receive the best and safest care. Most of the information for this podcast is from that article, and you can find links to the paper in our episode notes. So let's jump right in with a formal definition of obesity. The World Health Organization classifies patient weight as follows. Underweight patients have a BMI of less than 18.5. Normal weight patients have a BMI from 18.5 to 24.9. Overweight patients have a BMI greater than or equal to 25. And obese patients have a BMI greater than or equal to 30. Obesity classification has changed somewhat recently, and the latest World Health Organization classification is pre-obese patients have a BMI of 25 to 29.9, class 1 obesity are patients with a BMI of 30 to 34.9, class 2 obesity refers to patients with a BMI of 35 to 39.9, and class 3 obesity is for patients with a BMI of greater than or equal to 40. For these categories, and in the absence of any other medical conditions, the corresponding ASA classification is as follows. For patients with a BMI up to and including 34.9, ASA is 1. For patients with class 2 obesity, the corresponding ASA is 2. For patients with class 3 obesity, the corresponding ASA is 3. It's worth mentioning that older classifications, like you might have heard things like morbidly obese, super obesity, super morbidly obese, and super, super morbidly obese are obsolete and shouldn't be used when describing patients. It's also worth mentioning that although we use the BMI to categorize obesity, it doesn't accurately describe a patient's body composition or the distribution of their tissues. And both of these are actually more important than BMI in terms of a patient's pathophysiology, perioperative risk, and anesthetic management. Principles of pre-anesthetic assessment are generally the same for both obese and non-obese patients in that special investigations are not performed routinely. That said, there are some specific components of the history and examination that are important to identify as these impact on a patient's perioperative risk, the need for additional investigations and the conduct of our anaesthetic. We should start by accurately grading a patient's obesity. 
Evidence confirms that class 3 obesity is associated with increased post-operative morbidity and mortality. But recent data has shown that patients with class 1 and class 2 obesity often have a lower incidence of complications than patients within the normal weight range. And this has been confirmed for several types of surgical procedures. This finding is referred to as the obesity paradox. Interestingly, underweight patients with a BMI under 18.5 have the highest mortality rates of all the BMI groups. The reasons behind this paradox are not fully understood. Fat distribution has been found as a better predictor of a patient's medical and perioperative risk than BMI, where central obesity confers a higher risk of developing the metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease, and these patients are more likely to present the anaesthetist with difficulties in airway and ventilation management. Central obesity is defined by the World Health Organization as a waist circumference of greater than 102 centimetres in men and greater than 88 centimetres in women. In Asian populations, central obesity is defined as greater than 90 centimetres in men and greater than 80 centimetres in women. So it's actually useful to determine whether the patient has predominantly central or truncal adipose tissue or they're apple-shaped or mainly peripheral adipose tissue or they're pear-shaped. Sarcopenic obesity describes obesity where there is reduced muscle mass and functionality and its presence is suggested by poor grip strength, a history of immobility and a slow gait. Patients with sarcopenic obesity show trends towards adverse outcomes, particularly when in combination with increasing age. Now, many comorbidities associated with obesity are known to increase perioperative risk, and sometimes we can mitigate these risks with good perioperative optimization and patient compliance. Remember, too, that there is variation in the health risk dependent on a patient's ethnicity, where patients of African and Caribbean and Asian descent have a higher risk of developing obesity-associated medical conditions. Beginning with the respiratory system, there is a correlation between obesity and both obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, and the obesity hypoventilation syndrome, or OHS. Regarding OSA, features to look for on the history include the following. Shortness of breath, oxygen saturation less than 95% when breathing room air, and a stop-bang score greater than or equal to 5. We'll just quickly run through stop-bang again. So S is snoring loud enough to be heard through closed doors. T tiredness or fatigue during the day. O, observed apneas during sleep. P, uh, high blood pressure. B, BMI greater to or equal to 35. A, age greater than or equal to 50 years. N, neck circumference greater than or equal to 40 centimetres. G is male gender. A patient has a low risk for OSA with a score of 0 to 2 an intermediate risk with a score of three to four and a high risk with scores of five and above. Now, when assessing patients for obesity hypoventilation syndrome or OHS, it is important to look for the following. A BMI of greater than 30, hypercapnia when awake, raised blood bicarbonate, hypoxia, and exclusion of other courses of hypoventilation. Now, for patients with suspected or confirmed obstructive sleep apnea and obesity hyperventilation syndrome, the following investigations should be considered. Now, most patients should receive a routine pre-op ECG, suspect right ventricular hypertrophy if there are signs of right ventricular strain, ST segment or T wave changes in leads V1 to 3, lead 2, lead 3 and lead AVF. If these are present, consider a transthoracic echo to rule out right ventricular hypertrophy or in severe cases pulmonary hypertension. A full blood count looking specifically for polycythemia. 
and arterial blood gas, spirometry, consider cardiopulmonary exercise testing if abnormalities are detected in the arterial blood gas or in spirometry, and if possible, it's preferred to refer these patients for further investigation and treatment of their suspected sleep-disordered breathing. So when it comes to planning an anaesthetic for patients with sleep-disordered breathing, there are some points to follow. So ideally, commence the CPAP before surgery and continue after surgery, insisting that the patient brings their sleep device into hospital with them. BiPAP is sometimes necessary to improve symptoms, particularly with patients with OHS. Avoid preoperative sedation and intraoperative long-acting opioids, and regional anaesthesia is preferred to general anaesthesia if possible. Plan the airway appropriately as patients have a fourfold increased risk of difficult intubation and bag mask ventilation. Extubate the patient wide awake and sitting as upright as possible. Consider continuous oximetry monitoring for the first 24 hours postoperatively. And plan for postoperative HDU if the patient's symptoms are not improved by the time of surgery or if the patient has moderate to severe OSA and is not on or cannot tolerate CPAP. Now, before we move on, we know that in Australia and indeed many other countries that the wait list for sleep studies is often weeks to months long and that getting a sleep study and implementing treatment prior to elective surgery may not be tenable. Mm. Indeed, many patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea aren't able to afford CPAP machines as they're quite expensive and not subsidised and many often cannot tolerate the CPAP. If you find yourself in this situation, it may be prudent to organise post-operative HDU admission, or if this isn't possible, continuous oximetry monitoring as patients experience a worsening of their disordered breathing for up to three days post-operatively. If you'd like more information about obstructive sleep apnea, check out our episode from Season 2 titled Day Sleeper. Love a bit of you know intra-podcast cross-promotion. So Love a plug. Love a good it, plug. <laughs> So asthma should be suspected if a patient admits to experiencing dyspnea or wheezing. Symptoms of asthma are common in obese patients but aren't always reversible with beta-2 agonists. And this is partially due to a chronic pro-inflammatory state from excess adipose tissue and partly from fat in and around the chest and abdomen causing small airways collapse. With weight loss, the symptoms from both classical asthma and adipose-related wheeze will improve. There are several obesity-associated health conditions that affect the cardiovascular system, and these include hypertension, left ventricular hypertrophy, left ventricular failure, conduction abnormalities, and cardiomyopathy. An index of suspicion should be present upon finding elevated systolic blood pressure, reduced exercise capacity, and clinical signs of heart failure or a history of cardiac syncope. Most patients should routinely have an ECG prior to their surgical procedure, but consider a transthoracic echo if functional or structural compromise of the heart is suspected. You should also consider referral to a cardiologist and establishing optimal management and optimization prior to surgery and anesthesia. Signs and symptoms of right heart failure should also be screened for when there is suspicion of sleep disordered breathing. Specifically in this case, complications like pulmonary hypertension and polycythemia may be present and referral for optimization and further investigation as for any other cardiac disease should be performed. Metabolic conditions that should be screened for in the patient with obesity includes diabetes mellitus, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the metabolic syndrome. The presence of type 2 diabetes mellitus is known to increase the risk of unanticipated admission to critical care in obese patients. Principles for optimising diabetes are the same for both obese and non-obese patients and include optimising glycemic control with an endocrinology referral for particularly treatment-resistant cases. 
Different anaesthetic societies have varying recommendations for when elective surgery should be postponed based on glycemic control. The Australian Diabetes Association guidelines of 2012 recommend delaying surgery when the HbA1c is over or equal to 9%, whereas the Association of Anaesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland 2016 guidelines recommend delaying where the HbA1c is over than or equal to 8.5%. The Joint British Society's guidelines of 2015 recommend specialist referral for patients whose HbA1c is over than or equal to 8.5%, but state that the decision to delay surgery depends on individual circumstances. Sadly, none of these guidelines have been updated recently to incorporate the recent body of research on this topic. For patients with NASH or NAFLD, evidence of liver cirrhosis or deranged liver function tests should be checked for. There is evidence that a liver-shrinking diet of less than 1,000 kilocalories per day can reverse the disease process to a degree, but in truth, this sounds pretty horrendous, and the duration over which this diet must be maintained is not clear. Out of curiosity, Kate, have you ever paid much attention to NASH or NAFLD? Look, NASH is one of those conditions that often pops up on a list of medical issues, and I tend not to worry about it unless I can see a derangement in their liver enzymes or, more worryingly, their liver function. Yeah. Uh, But in truth, I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable recommending such a restrictive diet, like a liver shrinking Mm. diet that I'm seeing in the pre-anesthetic clinic. And I don't think I've actually ever met a patient who's done the liver shrinking diet before. Mm. I think if someone was to embark upon a fairly radical course of action like this, I'd want it to be recommended by and overseen by a specialist. Yeah, look, I pretty much feel the same. I honestly can't imagine talking to a patient about a liver shrinking diet and frankly I feel like it's beyond our scope of practice to do so. Mm. So like you say, I'd rather refer the patient back to their sort of regular specialist or for them to implement and for them to implement these sorts of treatment strategies mm. because frankly this is way beyond my mm. scope of practice. And look, it's not to downplay uh, conditions such as NASH because I know people can end up having liver transplants yeah. with severe NASH but it's all about trying to like everything we do see what the severity is and then you know guide our treatment or recommendations upon that in yeah. the pre-assessment. Yeah. Mm. So let's spend some time talking about the metabolic syndrome. Its presence regardless of the class of obesity is associated with a significant increase in post-operative mortality. We see increased risk of post-op cardiac complications to the tune of two to threefold, an increased risk of pulmonary complications by 1.5 to 2.5 times, and an increased risk of acute kidney injury, stroke and sepsis when compared to patients classified as normal weight. These patients are also at greater risk of developing cardiovascular disease and diabetes mellitus. Diagnosis of the metabolic syndrome requires the presence of three or more of the following, central obesity, hypertension, impaired glucose tolerance or diabetes mellitus, elevated triglycerides, and decreased HDL cholesterol. Now, the importance in confirming or excluding the presence of the metabolic syndrome is for both preoperative risk prediction and to inform the patient, but also to assist in planning the anaesthetic. As we previously mentioned, these patients have significantly higher perioperative risk and in the presence of other significant medical conditions, particularly for invasive and major procedures, planned postoperative admission to critical care may be prudent. Now, lastly, an obese patient's ability to exercise at or above four metabolic equivalents suggests a low-risk patient. That said, it can be difficult to elucidate functional capacity in these patients. Indeed, there are many obese patients capable of achieving four METs but with other factors limiting their physical ability. 
Routine tests such as climbing a flight of stairs or walking on a flat level surface may not be tenable tests of fitness for some obese patients. Cardiopulmonary exercise testing is not routine but can be utilised in patients where preoperative assessment suggests high risk and where favourable exercise tolerance assists in decision making. Keep in mind though that obesity can confuse the interpretation of these results and that equipment may not be suitable for patients above a certain weight. Though there are no validated risk prediction tools for all surgical circumstances, the Obesity Surgery Mortality Risk Score, or the OS-MRS, is a risk ratification tool authenticated for bariatric surgery and may be useful in obese patients preparing for non-bariatric procedures. Patients are scored from 0 to 5 based on the presence of the following five risk factors. BMI over 50, male gender, hypertension, age over 45, and presence of risk factors for pulmonary embolus, including previous VTE, presence of an IVC filter, OSA or OHS, right heart failure, and pulmonary hypertension. It should be noted that for this last risk factor, a maximum score of one is given in the presence of any of the PE risk factors. The value of this screening tool is in deciding whether a patient should be booked for a critical care post-operative bed. A high-risk patient with a score of four to five should prompt consideration of a planned HDU admission after surgery. Now, something final that's worth considering in both obese and indeed non-obese patients is whether they've undergone previous weight loss surgery, as this has some significant implications for your anaesthetic. These procedures can be restrictive, and this includes sleeve gastrectomies and adjustable gastric bands, or malabsorptive, as is the case with the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass or one anastomosis gastric bypass. Patients that have previously had a restrictive procedure are at a high risk of regurgitation of gastric contents and aspiration, even with prolonged fasting times, regardless of the presence or absence of symptoms. It is recommended that these patients should be routinely intubated and an RSI with an antacid pre-med should be considered, particularly with patients that have a gastric band. And in gastric band patients, nasogastric tube placement should be avoided unless in the presence of an acute abdomen or bowel obstruction because inserting them increases the risk of band displacement or perforation of the proximal stomach. The band should not be deflated as it risks infection, band erosion into the stomach or damage to the band itself. If manipulating the band is deemed essential, then this should be discussed with a bariatric surgeon prior to doing so. Patients that have undergone malabsorptive surgical procedures may have an issue with absorbing certain medications as a result of reduced oral bioavailability. Shortening of the small bowel and a loss of functional surface area limits the ability of some medications, particularly slow-release medications, to be absorbed. This should be kept in mind when prescribing oral analgesics postoperatively. Now, Even though we still have a lot to talk about, we've somehow reached our time limit and in the next episode, we'll be sure to discuss the planning and conduct of anaesthesia for obese patients. It's been a great discussion this week on deep breaths. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. If you know someone that would sound great talking about a particular topic, please let us know. And following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify makes finding new episodes easier, so be sure to click that button. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.